0: good morning good morning everyone well I want to thank you all for uh, so kindly welcoming uh, Edward last week um, what a an amazing thing to see what's going on around the world with so many different Christians isn't it wasn't that incredible um, I listened to some of it and I've known uh, his his Ed Edwards, I guess, boss and his uh his uh the, the founder and director of Far Reaching Ministries, Wes Bentley, has been a uh pretty good friend of mine, at least at least a dear friend for quite some time, uh probably maybe twenty five years ish, somewhere in that area. And he has um been for that entire time, trying to get me to go with him for a week or so to Sudan to uh, teach the chaplains, um, and one of the things he said to me is, he says, "Jeff, I'll have you teach one book of the uh, one of the Gospels." I, I remember him telling me he wanted me to do Matthew, one gospel in a week to these guys. I'm like, I'm teaching I'm teaching Luke through like a whole year, or so, <laughs> um, but. Uh, but, yeah, uh, he said that you 'll be looking in the eyes of guys that are willingly going out to die oh man that 's just incredible isn 't it? Well, w- uh, Edward was here while uh, my family and I were on vacation, and I just want to let you know we we are also so. Refreshed. It's just uh, been a. It was a wonderful time. We we were able to take a trailer up with us, and I don't think I ever want to do it another way. Again, it was just great, and so um, it we just had a just a fantastic time. We saw my mom up there. And we she was actually we she got out of bed, which she never does. Got out of bed a couple of times, and she uh, we we all watched the Super Bowl together. We stayed at the beach a couple of nights, and. Boy, it was just a, just a refreshing time, and uh, you know, really, I, I I tried to put my phone away. A lot of people ask, "How was your vacation?" "How was your?" So, sorry, I didn't get back to everybody. Um, it was fantastic, uh, and and again, we had a good time. And even even my even my biggest complainer was like, "Dad, that was just a great trip. I just really enjoyed enjoyed that trip." So, yeah, it was cool. So, thank you for letting us go. Uh, for the week, and we're back in Luke. And uh, this is, it's going to be exciting today. Uh, we, have, we have a great uh, passage here. And so we're in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And we're going to read through verse 30. So let's go ahead and, and uh, begin to read. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through the surrounding country and he taught in the synagogues being glorified by all and he came to nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives And recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Oh, our good and gracious God, we lay this morning before you, this text that we will study. We ask that you would speak to us, Lord. God, We know that you are the one true God. Let us not only like the idea of Jesus, but love Jesus. Um, Lord, let us um, seek him, sit at his feet, and receive and embrace his words. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Teach us, Father, to be submissive servants. Teach us to live in your word and help us to understand what you have for us this morning. God, we ask your Holy Spirit would come and inhabit this place and our hearts as we we worship you by reading and by studying your scriptures that you have given us to know you by. We give this time over to you and to the scriptures that you have inspired. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I remember as a college kid, I took a, a class called Aviation Safety and Accident Investigation. It was about 26, 27 years ago, maybe longer. Um, and it was like this NTSB FAA class, and we got to read through NTSB reports and, and watch videos or different things, and we got to kind of in-class investigate crashes and accidents and stuff like that. It was one of my one of my favorite classes back then. And I recall the professor telling a story of a pilot who one day, and if I recall correctly it was it was during pre-flight, he caught an issue with the airplane. What had happened was the electric flaps on this on his uh, on his Cessna were not working. What flaps do is they change the size and shape of the wing to uh, for different types of Maneuvers, takeoff and landing, and things like that. Well, upon investigation, the pilot found that the fuse for the flat motor had blown, so he replaced the fuse. Shortly thereafter, at some point, the, fuse, the new fuse blew again, and so instead of investigating why that happened, the pilot solved the problem by replacing the fuse once more with a bigger fuse. This is a story we call, How Did I Spectacularly in a Fiery Plane Crash. Uh, For those of you who who know what the purpose of a fuse is, you can probably predict what happened next. The fuse is an overcurrent device. It it prevents too much electrical current from going through the wires or the electrical motor or other things like that so that they don't catch fire. The pilot went to raise or lower the flaps at some point. I don't know if he was in the air or not. I can't remember. But the wing caught fire. Now, I don't recall again whether or not he was in the air, but at best, he lost a very expensive possession. If you're an electrician, you may have been asked by a homeowner to upgrade the circuit breakers. Yeah, because those pesky 15 and 20 amp circuit breakers in the house uh, just keep tripping, right? We need an upgrade. Um, same principle too much current. If the, if the overcurrent device isn't the weakest link, something else breaks. And so we call that story, How to Catch Your House on Fire. Um, today, we're going to learn an even greater lesson than our pilot friend uh, or the homeowner who wants a circuit breaker upgrade. We will call that story, How to Reject Jesus. And rejecting Jesus is much easier than installing a fuse or a circuit breaker. Any of us can do it and we need very little instruction all in fact we don't need any instruction it comes very naturally to us and it's just like what the people in Jesus own hometown did and this is the most dangerous story of them all last week you heard from Edward Amaya uh, from far-reaching ministries and the week before that we looked at the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and we spent a bit of time speaking about spiritual warfare and how it affects us. And we've all seen so much spiritual warfare around us, whether we have recognized it or not. And this week, Jesus goes from there, and he heads back to Galilee, and he uh, begins his public ministry. Um, and that's, that's that 14 and verses 14 and 15. And then, at some point, we jump ahead by maybe a year, um, and, and he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth we need to keep in mind that Luke is arranged more thematically than it is chronologically so your chronological order would probably be more accurate in uh, Matthew and Luke and Luke, or Matthew and Mark and, and Luke is taking uh, things that happened and kind of putting them together so these are the kind of things that happened and then these are the kind of things that happened and it kind of runs the whole uh, period now verse 14 it says this and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went through, the through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And remember that Jesus here has accepted human limitation. So he is relying on the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit when he was hungry in the desert, being tempted, or in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. <clears throat> now he's heading into Galilee by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, his, his physical and emotional needs have been met, but now he's beginning ministry. And so let me just address that. If the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, needs to rely on the third person, tr- person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, for ministry, so do we. Right? I've seen people try to do ministry in their own strength, and it never goes well. And I'll be candid with you, I've attempted to do ministry in my own strength and wisdom, and it has only gone horribly. We desperately, if Jesus needs the Holy Spirit, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. But God doesn't fail at what He intends to do. So when we're doing ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, He accomplishes what He intends to do through us every time. So let's go to, to, to the time and place here. We're, we're in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel, where and Nazareth is. Nazareth is where Mary and Joseph are from, uh, where Jesus grew up. And we see in that region of Galilee that Jesus is gaining a reputation, places like Capernaum. He's teaching in the synagogues. And, and that word synagogue it just means assembly. Uh, it's where the Jewish people would gather to pray, to read the Scriptures. Uh, to hear a sermon or exposition of the scriptures. It's just the gathering of the people. Um, but usually they had a building. So it's much like what we do here. Jesus was a traveling rab- rabbi, so he would have been given the honor of presenting the scriptures, given, giving like the meditation or the exposition of what he read. Um, and it, this would happen in any, any synagogue he would show up at. So, and, and not only that, but it tells us that everybody liked him said he was well received by all i like the way the christian standard bible puts it it says being praised by everyone so this is happening over a period of up to a year and then luke zeroes in on what happened in nazareth in contrast to what we had just read verse 16 it says he came to nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom he went into the synagogue on the sabbath day and he stood up to read now jesus shows up in his hometown he's raised there none of the gospel writers give us much insight into his childhood the only thing we see is in luke which we uh read a few weeks ago uh was his adolescence when mary and joseph took him to jerusalem and then left without him they forgot him or they they thought he was with them and he they went back up they started going back up to nazareth and Then they realize Jesus wasn't there and they come back and they're looking for like three days in Jerusalem and finally they find him in the temple uh, speaking with all the rabbis and leaders. And so that's all we have. Uh, We know nothing about his upbringing in Nazareth, just that he was raised there. Now, Jesus has been traveling from synagogue to synagogue, teaching, and he shows up now in Nazareth where he enters the synagogue and he stands up to read let's go ahead and read that verse 17 and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the lord's favor now a visiting rabbi would come in and attend, an attendant would hand them, them the scroll we can't be sure if the scroll was just picked at random or if the attendant chose it or jesus chose it uh, if he was if it was requested by him but uh at any case what he does is he reads out of part of isaiah 58 and 61 This is what Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 says. And remember, this is a summary. He's not telling the... He may have read the whole several chapters of Isaiah. They didn't have it broken up in chapters and verses quite like we do. It says, the Spirit of the Lord God... This is verse 1 and 2, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And then in Isaiah 58, a couple of chapters back, verse 6, it says, Is this... Is not this the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Isaiah, in these passages, is describing the coming Redeemer, or Messiah, or if it was the, in the Greek, the Christ, or Christos. Isaiah describes the servant of God and and the apex of his mission is expressed in Isaiah 53, to bear the sin of his people. His mission is twofold, to be the savior of the people by bearing their sins and to be their just Lord and conqueror. Now the Jews in Jesus' day would be primarily concerned with that second part. The Jews would be looking at redemption primarily in terms of deliverance from the Roman Empire. And also, you know, some sort of national independence. So because that is actually the oppression that they felt every time that they woke up to see another day. And they would be looking at God's wrath as the expression of justice toward their oppressors. So to them, the natural reading would make Israel the object or the recipient of the good news. Uh, They would identify themselves as the poor or the victims of Rome which is not a bad interpretation really but they left part of it out the text mentions the poor the captives the blind the oppressed and we would see these as legitimately marginalized people wouldn't we Uh, we don't want to over spiritualize this and neglect those who are physically marginalized or disabled Jesus is concerned about both spiritual and physical poverty but we will see that the Nazarenes, Jesus, the Nazarenes Jesus is speaking to don't seem to be as concerned with the first part of the servant's mission to be the savior of them by bearing their sins. They were thinking about the social conditions to the exclusion of their own spiritual poverty. Here's something Kent Hughes said about it. He says the, the word poor can cover poverty of every kind. But the emphasis here is on a conscious, moral, and spiritual poverty, which often is the lot of the financially poor. The rich are less likely to be aware of their spiritual poverty. Now, isn't it interesting how the Bible um, can be just so practical? Like living, living in the richness of God's grace and being obedient to Him, oftentimes uh, prevents some of those lifetime, uh, lifestyle choices and habits that can oftentimes lead to sp- uh, physical poverty. But even those who sense a need to be redeemed from something often see themselves as victims. They don't need to be saved from themselves, but from whatever outside source is oppressing them. We need, we need humility to recognize that our biggest oppressor is the sin that we choose to live with. So let's, let's move on here. Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. They're prophets. They all performed miracles. They were just men that God used as prophets. They were not divine in any way. Today we can read uh, in the New Testament about the apostles who were not divine people. They were just human beings also performing miracles. None of these had any supernatural power of their own. It didn't come from them. They relied upon the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, it says, also relies here on the Holy Spirit, or the third person of the Trinity, because he had voluntarily taken on human flesh and all of its limitations. Verse 20, Luke 4, 20, it says, He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. In the synagogue, the rabbi would stand to pray and to read. And then he would sit down to give the teaching or to explain the text. And and that's like the sermon. I have a dear friend in in Cuba, New York, uh, where we were before we came here. And he has a stool that he sits on when he preaches. He's my age. He's not an old guy but he sits on a stool when he preaches because he doesn't want to appear to be like a stiff formal sermonizer um, kind of a pastor and a lot of people out there they they find that very appealing and I I think for me I'm probably too relaxed when I'm sitting and I, I have a hard enough time keeping people awake when I'm standing up so I will stand at any rate the rabbi would sit on a bench or stool some kind of chair and the people would sit at his feet on the floor And I don't know why when I read this, my mind went straight to kindergarten. Do you remember kindergarten? The teacher would sit in the, we would have these little plastic like the, I remember them being orange or yellow or like brown. The chairs were like the three little holes in it and the back, the plastic chairs with the metal legs. And then the teacher had the giant version of that. You remember that? And the teacher would sit down in the gigantic version of our little orange chairs and then we would all sit on the floor at story time. And we'd all sit, they, at the time they called it Indian style. And um, apparently that's offensive now. So we don't call it that anymore. I, I, when I was in seminary, I, sub, I, I, I was a substitute teacher. And I subbed in a few kindergarten and first grade classes. And um, th- what they call that now is crisscross applesauce. So now it's just ridiculous. But so... <laughs> my my image of this whole scene in Luke is here's Jesus in all black with the little curly sideburn thing that the, that the Jews wear and a rabbi hat sitting on a plastic chair while a bunch of Jewish people in like their yarmulkes sit crisscross applesauce with their chins in their hands just kind of looking up at him like he's about to read Dr. Seuss like well what's he going to say they heard things about healings and miracles and I wonder how, this is, I, I know if I was Jesus, I wouldn't be a good Jesus. I, would, I wonder how long he just sat there silent, keeping them in suspense, like while they just glared at him. Right? And, and at this next moment, he could have just, after he says it, he could just drop the mic and walk away. This is what he says. He goes in verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled and you're hearing. Drop, walk away. Like, what? Whoa! Like, dude, this guy just claimed to be Christ. Can you imagine being in that room? Like, I heard a story some time ago. of Somebody who walked in a mental hospital and was met immediately by a patient, um, Joan of Arc. Said, Joan of Arc? Um, he goes, y- you're, you're, you're Joan of Arc? Well, indeed I am. Joan of Arc. The man replied, well, who... Who told you you were Joan of Arc? The man confidently replied, God did? And from down the hall, another voice cried out, I did not. <laughs> Only Jesus can make that claim uh, to be everlasting God. Only Jesus can claim to be my Messiah and be right about it. So you have to understand, to these, all these Jewish people sitting crisscross applesauce around Jesus, this was shocking. This was shocking. Is this guy crazy? Is he trying to start a cult? Like we know this guy. He's Joe's kid. How in the world is he the Messiah? What is he saying? So they they spoke well of him, but we're going to see that they stopped far short of believing him. They were astonished, which, and that could be a positive or a negative thing, but we see them start to turn here. Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? To, about their amazement, this is what Kent Hughes said. He said, But that is as far as it went. They had all known him since he was a mere boy. They had known him as the nice little lad down the street or a playmate and later as the carpenter. Their admiration apparently degenerated into cynicism. Isn't this Joseph's son? They admired his words, but they were totally unmoved and unaffected by their meaning. John Calvin makes this note. He says, Here Luke draws our attention first to the truly divine grace which breathed in the lips of Christ and then presents a lively picture of the ingratitude of men. I love here that Jesus puts grace in motion by using gracious words. Oh, that we would learn that. Gracious words. They were so gracious, these words, that the people marveled. But but the Nazarenes were like so many who will show up in churches around the world this morning, or who already have, who have or will hear the gospel. They'll hear the truth of Jesus. They'll hear the scriptures read. And they will walk away completely unaltered by it. And remember, Luke is not, he's not recording this whole sermon verbatim. This is a summary. But the Jews here, make no mistake, they understand exactly what he is insinuating. One commentator said, it may be that spoke well or literally bore witness really means bore witness against him. And we're amazed... May indicate annoyance rather than acceptance. There's a possibility there. The most important question that we, any of us, any of us in this room could ask is Who is Jesus? Allow me to quote Sprawl. R.C. Sprawl says There is no more important judgment that you will ever make answering, than answering the question Who is Jesus? Sit there for a moment in your imagination on the floor in the synagogue. You've just heard the text. You've just heard the word of God. And now you hear the son of God saying, I am he. What's your response? Do you leap for joy and say, thank you, God. We've waited so patiently. Do you want to run up and hug his neck and say, we're so glad, Jesus, to know that you are the Messiah. That is not, or that was not the response in Nazareth. They, They couldn't swallow what Jesus was saying. To them, he's just a common person. A lot of quotable stuff this week. I read some great commentaries. Here's, one by, here's a quote by Philip Ryken. He said, they knew, they knew that he was Joseph's son, but they did not believe that he was the Christ. And they wanted some kind of proof. They had heard stories about what he had done in the nearby village of Capernaum. As far as they were concerned, if Jesus wanted them to believe, he had to show them what he could do. His preaching wasn't enough. They wanted him to perform. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is one you could underline or highlight in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews demand a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. See, the flesh does not want to believe what it cannot understand or control. The claims of Jesus would be absurd and outlandish had they been made by anyone else. And to these people, he was just another guy. Let's move on to verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years, and six months, and great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus is pretty much telling these people that they're not going to believe in him. He's not going to prove himself on their terms. He knows what they're thinking. He isn't going to spoon feed them proof that they're going to reject anyway. And so he appeals to the prophets Elijah and Elisha. The first one, Elisha, we can read about in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 7. It says, And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. She was going to bring it, and he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. She said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. And only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it, and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and she did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Notice that the woman here believed and didn't demand more proof. And because of that, she produced more than she was capable of producing. And and she proved... A well-known proverb that we read today. You've all heard it. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Then Jesus appeals to the prophet Elisha. That's the next book over. 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5. It says, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians on one of their roads had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, "Mistress, would, would that my Lord were to uh, excuse me would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy so Naaman went in and told his lord thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel the king of Syria said go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel so he went taking with him 10 talents of silver 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing and he brought the letter to the king of israel which read when this letter reaches you know that i have sent to you Naaman, my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy and when the king of israel read the letter he tore his clothes and said am i god to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me but when elisha the man of god heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers in Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage, but his servants came near him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. will you not do it, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Both of these accounts would have been very well known to any faithful Jew. And we see that Naaman, Naaman had to humble himself. There was no ceremonious event that would heal him. And at first it angered him, but his servants convinced convinced him to obey the prophet. And this was Christ's message to his audience here, the Jews in their yarmulkes sitting in crisscross applesauce, right? He isn't going to go around with great pomp and prestige, healing people with an elaborate golden scepter. He was born in a barn. He was raised in Nazareth, which is the northern Israel equivalent to Barstow. There's nothing exciting about him. Isaiah 53, 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we, we should desire him. There was nothing special about Jesus except that he was Messiah, that he is the everlasting God. Here's how the people devolve in their response. Verse 28. It says, when they heard these things and all the synagogue were filled with wrath and they they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The people were so concerned about their temporal needs that they could not get out of their own flesh. Jesus claims to be the Christ, and yet he says nothing about kicking out Rome and stringing up the Romans, and this upset them. Romans 8, 7 and 8, this is another one you need to underline or highlight or something, Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus knew that these people could not please God. They did not honor or receive Jesus as Messiah. Listen, if you're a Christian because of what Jesus does for you, you're a Christian for the wrong reasons. He wasn't about to beg the people in the synagogue to receive him. Oh, pretty please, I'll do miracles for you. No. No. Listen. If our acceptance on Jesus, our acceptance of Jesus rather, is conditioned on what He will do for us, we have not really accepted Jesus because we don't understand who He is. Uh, I don't know how many of us have noticed this. I know I have an increase of of hostility toward biblical truth, even by long time Christians. I, I don't mean they got mad because the church didn't do enough or did too much in response to COVID. i'm not even talking about that i'm talking about abandoning the unchanging unorthodox or the unchanging orthodox biblical message for something that cannot be reconciled with the plain meaning of scripture i have so many friends and former students who seem to they seem to be strong and faithful christians at one time and they begin this journey by trying to kind of reconcile their faith with contemporary social values. And those contemporary social values are always evolving and always changing. They always have and they always will. And so they re their beliefs. Those who went straight to the scriptures were often strengthened. But many of them began a different journey by following people who had different ideas about the Bible instead of going to the Bible itself. They began to kind of deconstruct their faith and functionally tried to manufacture a form of Christianity that reads the Bible through the lens of culture rather than the other way around. And what happens when we do that is we place the culture in authority over the scriptures. For many of this led to a form of Christian agnosticism where Jesus is Lord, the Bible is true, but we can't really know with certainty what the Bible means. Therefore, Jesus must not be willing to hold us responsible for living up to its standards. And most of the people who go there end up in full-blown agnosticism, where if God does exist, we can't know with any real degree of certainty who he is or what he requires of humanity. Along this journey, many people have become more and more hostile towards God and toward God's people. And so, we ask the question, why were the people angry at Jesus in Nazareth? He didn't do things on their terms. He didn't do things on their terms. You know, people generally don't like to admit how needy they are. With Rome, the Jews could claim victim status, but when confronted with the need to be saved from themselves, they became hostile, and they wanted to yeet him off a cliff. Nobody wants to claim moral poverty. It isn't easy for anyone to admit to being spiritually bankrupt. The, the idea that Jesus was well received in Nazareth, or, or rather the idea of Jesus, the idea of Jesus was well received in Nazareth. They liked the idea of Jesus. But Jesus himself was rejected because he didn't fit their 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 manufactured ideas of the messiah and two or three years later the people of jerusalem they loved the idea of jesus they loved the idea of jesus so much that they ran out to him with palm branches they laid their own clothes down for jesus to trample over with the colt, and they ushered him into the city like a king but they soon realized that he would not act according to their perceptions of messiah they were so closely married to their eschatological end times ideas that they rejected him and they killed him as a fraud. But you know what's interesting about that? God took that and that's our hope. The fact that Jesus went to the cross for our sins took the penalty of sin upon himself. Today, we have many ideas about Messiah out there, very appealing to our culture. In fact, go outside of the church. Everybody likes the idea of Jesus in and out of the church. We all like the idea of Jesus. But when he doesn't operate on our social or political or religious terms, how are we going to respond to that? Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel that you believe, but yourself. You see, we like to blame everyone else for our social and spiritual poverty. And then we look everywhere but the Bible for answers to cure it. Many people uh, years ago thought that Barack Obama had all the answers and that his politics, his policies would bring uh, peace and justice and prosperity for all. And for many, he was like this political messiah figure. But he, he failed to live up to those expectations. And it wasn't because... Uh, he wasn't a nice guy, and it wasn't because of the Republicans, or it wasn't because the racists or those that opposed him. He failed to live up to the hype because he's not the Messiah. And so then we looked the other direction for a socio-political Messiah and elected Donald Trump, who made the same promises of justice and peace and prosperity through vastly different policies. And he too failed to live up to the pedestal that he was put on. And and I'm not going to suggest that either one of these men had bad intentions or wrong intentions, but they were human. Both of these men had information and ideas. But only Jesus has the answers. In the end, when we look to presidents or governors or government agencies or news sources, social media, any other earthly power, For the answers, we will only find failure and disappointment because all they have to offer is information and ideas. Only the God of the universe has the answers. And sometimes those answers are different than we expect or want them to be. The Christian church is really good at looking for answers and politics and finances and good behavior and and all these other things and Dave Ramsey and and all these things. And all these things can be good things but they can also distract us from looking to God for the answers. I'm not pointing a finger here at IBC. In fact, I've been with a number of churches and I can say that we are eons beyond many of the churches out there. But if we're to be honest, I really do believe that we still do this more often than we realize. We have some of our favorite authors and some of our favorite uh, organizations and, and, and um, things that we look to for answers and 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 listen none of those things are bad things those are all good things or can be at least but we need to understand that good ideas are still ideas only jesus has the answer only jesus has the answer i'd like to close with a story that i read in kent hughes commentary it goes like this a large prestigious british church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches located in the slums of a major city were some outstanding cases of conversions. Thieves, burglars, and others. But all knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and become a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out uh, with the pastor and said to him, "Do you notice? Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? two walked along in silence for a few more moments and the judge said what a miracle of grace the pastor nodded in agreement a marvelous miracle of grace indeed the judge then inquired but to whom do you refer the former convict the pastor answered the judge said i was not referring to him i was thinking of myself the minister surprised replied you were thinking of yourself i i don't understand You see, the judge went on, it's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. When he understood that Jesus could be a savior, he knew that there was salvation and hope and joy for him. (coughs) And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my words were to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees. I was called to the bar, and I eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm the greater miracle. Friends, those of us who feel least like we need God's grace very well may be the ones who need it most. As we come before the Lord's table this morning, I want us to reflect on how we can become so hostile to our own Lord when we're confronted with our helpless condition and our desperate need for Him. I want us to commit to embracing him on his terms, not our own. May we come to him without expectation for ourselves, but for his glory. And and listen, if you haven't crossed the line of faith yet, you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ Jesus, we would respectfully ask that you honor our sacred right by not participating. But we would also ask that you would come to Jesus this morning. Repent of your sins. Surrender fully to Jesus and all faith and trust. And, and if you do, I would ask that you would please see one of us. See me. Um, I, I, I see uh, several people. Lance is back there. Uh, Jim and Lana back there. Uh, Dennis is over here, my wife. Uh, there are so many of us who would love to pray with you if you make that step today. The rest of us, please hold on to your communion elements that you have. And uh, we're going to receive together. And as we do that, I'd ask that you would reflect on this thought. We all really like the idea of Jesus. But do we love Jesus? Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you that you are, that you are the one true and living God. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. God, we thank you that We have Jesus, the Messiah, that he is who he says he is. And we are great sinners in desperate need of his grace. God, grant to us repentance that we may have that. Fill us, Father, with your Holy Spirit as we partake of this gracious meal. Lord, help us to heap grace upon grace. Help us to love one another. Father God, help us to sit constantly at the feet of Jesus as it were, to hear from him, to believe him, to obey him. Be present, Father, as we uh, now prepare to receive this sacred feast. May Jesus be present with us as we remember him. God, it's by your grace that the blood of Jesus was poured out upon that wretched and beautiful cross. God, humble us as we prepare to receive this holy meal in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.
1: My heart, Lord, Here's my heart.
0: It says in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. If you would just open the top of your. The bottom of your chalice thing here. Whatever that is. Whatever. Up, down. Who knows. And Take the little bread out. And we would given thanks. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread. And you're going to want to be careful opening this other piece. That's grape juice. It stains. You want to stay, be stained by the blood of Jesus, not grape juice. Continues in the same way. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. It continues, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and we cry out, God, come Lord Jesus. We await your holy presence and long to serve with humility and gratitude on your terms and your kingdom forever. We offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise, solely devoted to you to serve as we enter our week and our mission field in the name of the Father,